10. One evening on the front a scouting party composed of 10 Germans including the discharged soldier, encountered two French Negroes. In the fight which followed two of the scouting party were killed. One of the Negroes escaped the other being taken prisoner. During the fight two of the Germans left their comrades and ran to the protection of their own trenches. But these it was explained, were young soldiers and entrained. The reward of 400 marks subsequently was divided among the remaining six Germans for capturing the one French Negro. The 93rd Division, which was made up of the 369th, 370th, 371st and the 372nd Regiments of Infantry, was put into service green. So green they did not know the use of rockets and thought a gas alarm and the tooting of sirens meant that the Germans were coming in automobiles. The New York Regiment came largely from Brooklyn and the district around West 59th Street in New York City, called San Juan Hill in reference to certain notable achievements of Negro troops at a place of that name in the Spanish-American War. They learned the game of war rapidly. The testimony of their officers was to the effect that it was not hard to send them into danger the hard part being to keep them from going into it of their own accord. It was necessary to watch them like hawks to keep them from slipping off on independent raiding parties. The New York Regiment had a band of 40 pieces, second to none in the American Army. It is stated that the officers and men in authority in the French billeting places had difficulty in keeping the villagers from following the band away when it played plantation airs and syncopations as only Negroes can play them. On April 12, 1918, the 369th took over a sector of 512 kilometers in the Bois de Housie on the left of a fringe of the Argonne Forest. There they stayed until July 1st. There was no violent fighting in the sector but many raids back and forth by the Negroes and the Germans, rifle exchanges and occasionally some artillery action. One important engagement occurred June 12, which the soldiers called the Million Dollar Raid, because they thought the preparatory barrage of the Germans must have cost all of that. The Germans came over, probably believing they would find the Negro outfit scared stiff, but the Negro lads let them have grenades, accurate rifle fire and a hail from some concealed machine gun nests. Served. Bob Collins was later given the Croix de Guerre for his disposition of the machine guns on that occasion. While holding the sector of Housie Wood, the 369th was the only barrier between the German army and Paris. However, had there been an attempt to break through, General Gourad, the French army commander, would have had strength enough there at once to stop it. About this time everyone in the Allied armies knew that the supreme German effort was about to come. It was felt as a surety that the brunt of the drive would fall upon the 4th French Army, of which the 369th Regiment and other portions of the American 93rd Division were a part. This army was holding a line 50 kilometers long, stretching between Rheims and the Argonne Forest. It was the intention of the Germans to capture Calons and then proceed down the Marne Valley to Paris. It was expected that the big German drive would begin on July 4th. But as it turned out it did not begin until the night of the 14th the French national holiday. On July 1st, the 369th had been moved from its sector further toward the east where the center of the attack was expected. Upon the 14th of July the French made a raid for the purpose of getting prisoners and information. This had a tremendous effect upon the whole course of the war. For through a General Gourad's staff learned that at midnight the Bosch artillery preparation was to begin and at 5.25 o'clock on the morning of the 15th the Germans were coming over the top. This phase of the operation is described by Call Hayward as follows, This is what General Gourad Pongarod we called him did, he knew the Bosch artillery would at the appointed hour start firing on our front lines, 
believing as was natural, that they would be strongly held, so he withdrew all his forces including the old 15th, to the intermediate positions, which were at a safe distance back of the front lines, then, at the point where he expected would be the apex of the drive he sent out two patrols, totaling 16 men, these 16 had certain camouflage to perform, they were to set going a certain type of French machine gun which would fire of its own accord for a while after being started off. They were to run from one of these guns to the other and start them. Also the 16 were to send up rockets, giving signals, which the Germans of course knew as well as we. Then again they were to place gas shells with the gas flowing out of them in all the dugouts of the first line. Meanwhile the French artillery had registered directly on our own front trenches so that it could slaughter the Germans when they came across, believing those trenches to be occupied as usual. Everything worked out as expected, and as luck had it, most of those gallant 16 Frenchmen got back safely. Five minutes before the Germans started their artillery preparation for the drive General Gerard started his cannon going and there was a slaughter in the German lines. Then when the German infantry crossed to our front line trenches now entirely vacant they were smashed up because the French guns were firing directly upon these positions, which they knew mathematically, and those of the Bosch who went down in the dugouts for safety were killed by the gas which the Frenchmen had left there for them. This battle the Supreme German Drive raged over 85 kilometers 51 miles, west of Rhines the enemy broke through the line, but they did not break through anywhere in General Gerard's sector. Stonewall Garrod stopped them. The American units which took in the defense that was so successful were the 42nd Division, including the gallant 69th of New York, who were to the west of us, our own little regiment, and the American Railroad Artillery, that was the turning point of the war, because soon thereafter began Marshal Foch's great counter-thrust, in which the 1st and 2nd American Divisions participated so wonderfully about Bellowood, Chateau 3 and that district, Garrod in my belief turned the tide of the war, and I am proud that the New York City colored boys had a share of that vital fight. Right here I may say that this orphan, urging regiment of ours placed in the pathway of the Bosch in the most significant battle the world has ever known, had only 37 commissioned officers, and four of those wounded, had to be carried in stretchers to their positions in the trenches in order to direct the fighting. Colonel Hayward was himself in the hospital with a broken leg. Disregarding the orders of the surgeons he went to the front line on crutches and personally directed his men in the fight. In all of his written and quoted utterances since the war, he has refrained from mentioning this fact, but it is embodied in the regimental records. Shortly after the French national holiday, the 369th was sent about 15 kilometers west to a position in front of the Butte de Mesville, a high hill near Maison and Champagne, occupied by the Germans. Around that district they held half a dozen sectors at different times with only one week of rest until September 26. Artillery duels were constant. It is related that near the Butte de Mesville the regiment lost a man an hour and an officer a day from the shell fire of the Bosch. So accurate were the gunners handling the German 77s that frequently a solitary soldier who exposed himself would actually be sniped off by a canoner. In the September fighting the 369th saw the toughest period of its entire service, in company with the Moroccan Negro unit and others, the regiment participated in the attack on the Butte de Mesville. the New Yorkers took the important town of Sechaoul and it was for that exploit that their flag was decorated with the Croix de Guerre, throughout the western Argonne fighting and the various sectors of the Champagne in which the 369th operated, especially during the months of July, August and September. 
Their service was typical of that of other units of the 93rd Division. The going was tough for all of them and each contributed everlasting fame to American arms and in dying renown to the Negro race. Heroes of the old 15th Infantry, officers and men of the 369th New York Colored Regiment awarded the Croix de Guerre for gallantry in action, served. A.A. Adams Corporation John Allen Lute, R.R.D. Armand Lute, G.A. Armstrong Corporation Farrandews Baker served. E.W. Barrington served M.W. Barron served. William D. Bartow capped. Aaron T. Bates Corporation Fletcher Battle Corporation Arbeen Corporation J.S. Beckton P.D.D. Muriel Billings served. Education Bingham Lute. J.C. Bradner P.D.D. Arthur Brokaw P.D.D. H.D. Brown P.D.D. T.W. Brown Lute. Elmer C. Booker P.D.D. W.M. H. Bunn served. W.M. Butler P.D.D. J.L. Bush served. Joseph Carmen Corporation T. Cato Corporation G. H. Chapman served. Major Benedict W. Cheeseman capped. John H. Clark. Junior Lute. P. Ann Clendon in capped. Frederick W. Cobb served. Robert Collins Lute. J. H. Connor served. W. M. H. Cox served. C. D. Davis Lute. Charles Dean P.D.D. P. Demps Wagoner Martin Bar Corporation Elmer Earl P.D.D. Frank Ellis served. Sam Van L. capped. Robbed. F. Ferguson. Junior capped. Charles W. Fillmore capped. Edward J. Farrell capped. Hamilton Fish. Junior capped. Edwin R. D. Fox Lute. Conrad Fox served. Richard W. Fowler PDD. Roland Francis PDD. B. Freeman PDD. I. Freeman served. W. M. A. Gaines Wagoner Richard O'Goins PDD. J. J. Gordon Lute. R. C. Grams PDD. Stillman Hannah PDD. Hugh Hamilton PDD. G. E. Hannibal PDD. Frank Harden PDD. Frank Hatchet Corporation Ralph Hawkins Colonel W.M. Hayward Lute. E.H. Holden served. W.M. H. Holiday Corporation Earl Horton P.D.D. G. Howard Lute. Stephen H. Howie served. Major Clarence C. Hudson P.D.D. Ernest Hunter served. S. Jackson Corporation Clarence Johnson served. D.F. Johnson P.D.D. Gilbert Johnson served. George Jones Lute. Gorman R. Jones served. James H. Jones P.D.D. Smithfield Jones P.D.D. J.C. Joins Lute, W.H. Keenan Lute, Ilwin C. Kin Lute, Harold M. Land Lute, Nels H. Larson Major David A. Lisperance Lute, W.F. Leland P.D.D., D.W. Lewis P.D.D., W.D. Link Major Arthur W. Little Lute, Walter R. Lockhart Served, B. Lucas P.D.D., Lester A. Marshall P.D.D., Lewis Martin Served, A.J. MacArthur Capped, Seth B. McClinton P.D.D., Elmer McGowan P.D.D., Herbert McGirt Capped, Comerford McClellan PDD, L. McVie served, H. Matthews served, Jesse A. Miller served, W.M. H. Miller served, E. Mitchell PDD, Herbert Mills Corporation M. Malson Lute, E. D. Morey served, W. Morey served, G. A. Morton Lute, E. A. Nostrand served, Samuel Nolan capped, John O. Outwater Lute, Hugh A. Page Lute, Oliver H. Parrish served, C. L. Pop A. PDD, Harvey Perry served, Clinton Peterson Lute, Call. W.A. Pickering Lute, Richardson Pratt served, John Pratt served, H.D. Primus P.D.D., Jeremiah Reed Lute, Durant Rice P.D.D., John Rice served, Samuel Richardson served, Charles Rice P.D.D., F. Richie Lute, G.S. Rob Corporation Fred Rogers P.D.D., Lionel Rogers P.D.D., George Rose Lute, R.N. Rowland served, Percy Russell served, L. Sanders P.D.D., William Sanford Lute, H.J. Argent P.D.D., Marshall Scott Capped. Louis E. Shaw capped. Samuel Shetarlute. Hoyt Sherman Major G. Franklin Shields PDD. A. Simpson served. Bertrand U. Smith PDD. 
Daniel Smith served. Hauerman Smith Corporation R.W. Smith Major Lori Lard Spencer served. J.T. Stevens Corporation Dan Storms Loot. George F. Stoll Corporation T.W. Taylor Loot. Frank B. Thompson served. Loa Thompson served. A.L. Tucker served. George Velasco Loot. D.H. Vaughn Capt. Edward A. Walton Capt. Charles Warren served. Leon Washington P.B.D. Casper White Capt. James D. White served. J. White served. Jesse J. White served. C.E. Williams P.B.D. Robert Williams served. Reeves Willis P.B.D. H. Wigington served. L. Wilson P.B.D. Tim Winston served. E. Woods P.B.D. George Woodlute. A.D. Worsham served. E.C. Wright served. Henry Johnson P.B.D. Needham Roberts Chapter X.D. Over there. Henry Johnson and Needham are OBRDs the Tigers Cubs Negro first to get Palm Johnson's graphic story smashes the Germans Irvin Cobb's tribute Christian and Mohammedan Negroes Pell's Valor of 93rd Division Laughter in Face of Death Negro and P.O.I.L.U. Happy Together Butte D.M.E.S.N.I.L. Valiant and Humorous Elmer McLaughlin Winning War Cross's Verdict of the French The Negro's Faith A Most Conspicuous Negro Hero of the War And for that matter of any race serving with the American Army was Sergeant Henry Johnson of Albany, N.Y. His exploit was shared by a company mate, Needham Roberts, for pure bulldog grin and tigerish fighting. The exploit has seldom, if ever, been equaled in the annals of any war. It resulted in the war crosses for each with a special citation, and the whole French force in that section of the Champagne lined up to see them get the decorations. Across the red and green ribbon of Johnson's decoration was a golden palm, signifying extraordinary valor. Johnson was the first private of any race in the American army to get the palm with his Croix de Guerre. Here is the story as told in Johnson's own words after his arrival back in New York, There isn't so much to tell, said Johnson with characteristic modesty. There wasn't anything so fine about it. Just fought for my life. A rabbit would have done that. Well, anyway, me and Needham Roberts were on patrol duty on May 15th. The corporal wanted to send out two new drafted men on the sentry post for the midnight to four job. I told him he was crazy to send in trained men out there and risk the rest of us. I said I'd tackle the job, though I needed sleep. German snipers had been shooting our way that night and I told the corporal he wanted men on the job who knew their rifles. He said it was imagination. But anyway he took those green men off and left me to mend me on the posts. I went on at midnight. It was moonlight. Roberts was at the next post. At one o'clock a sniper took a crack at me from a bush fifty yards away. Pretty soon there was more firing and when Sergeant Roy Thompson came along I told him. What's the matter meant he asked. You scared? No I ain't scared. I said. I came over here to do my bit and I'll do it. But I was Jay's letting you know there's liable to be some tall scrapping around this post tonight. He laughed and went on. And I began to get ready. They'd a box of hand grenades there and I took them out of the box and laid them all in a row where they would be handy. There was about 30 grenades, I guess. I was going to bust that Dutch army in pieces if it bothered me. Somewhere around 2 o'clock I heard the Germans cutting our wire out in front and I called to Roberts. When he came I told him to pass the word to the lieutenant. He had just started off when the snipping and clipping of the wire sounded near. So I let go with a hand grenade. There was a yell from a lot of surprised Dutchmen and then they started firing. I hollered to Needham to come back. A German grenade got Needham in the arm and through the hip. He was too badly wounded to do any fighting. So I told him to lie in the trench and hand me up the grenades. Keep your nerve I told him. All the Dutchmen in the woods are at us. But keep cool and we'll lick em. 
Roberts crawled into the dugout. Some of the shots got me. One clipped my head, another my lip, another my hand, some in my side and one smashed my left foot so bad that I had a silver plate holding it up now. The Germans came from all sides. Roberts kept handing me the grenades and I kept throwing them and the Dutchmen kept squealing. But Jay's the same they kept coming on. When the grenades were all gone I started in with my rifle. That was alright until I shoved in an American cartridge clip it was a French gun and it jammed. There was nothing to do but use my rifle as a club and jump into them. I banged them on the dome and the side and everywhere I could land until the butt of my rifle busted. One of the Germans hollered, rush him, rush him. I decided to do some rushing myself. I grabbed my French bolo knife and slashed in a million directions. Each slash meant something. Believe me, I wasn't doing exercises. Let me tell you. I picked out an officer. A lieutenant I guess he was. I got him and I got some more of them. They knocked me around considerable and wanged me on the head. But I always managed to get back on my feet. There was one guy that bothered me. He climbed on my back and I had some job shaking him off and pitching him over my head. Then I stuck him in the ribs with the bolo. I stuck one guy in the stomach and he yelled in good New York talk, that black got me. I was still banging them when my crowd came up and saved me and beat the Germans off. That fight lasted about an hour. That's about all. There wasn't so much to it. Remember there was not much to it. Excepting that next morning the Americans found four German bodies with plentiful indications that at least 32 others had been put on the casualty list and several of the German dead probably had been dragged back by their comrades. 38 bombs were found, besides rifles, bayonets and revolvers. It was Irvin Cobb, the southern story writer, who first gave to the world a brief account of the exploit of Johnson and Roberts in the Saturday Evening Post during the summer of 1918. He commented as follows, if ever proof were needed, which it is not, that the color of a man's skin has nothing to do with the color of his soul. This twain then and there offered it in abundance. Mr. Cobb in the same article paid many tributes to the men of the 369th and 371st serving at that time in that sector. Among other things he said, they were soldiers who wore their uniforms with a smart and pride, who were jaunty and alert and prompt in their movements, and who expressed as some did vocally in my hearing, and all did by their attitude, a sincere heartfelt inclination to get a whack at the foe with the shortest possible delay. Continuing. Mr. Cobb uttered a sentiment that is sure to awaken a glow in the hearts of all sympathizers and friends of the Negro race. I am of the opinion personally, he said, and I make the assertion with all the better grace. I think, seeing that I am a Southerner with all the Southerners inherited and acquired prejudices touching on the race question that as a result of what our black soldiers are going to do in this war, a word that has been uttered billions of times in our country, sometimes in derision, sometimes in hate sometimes in all kindliness but which I am sure never fell on black ears but it left behind a sting for the heart is going to have a new meaning for all of us, south and north too, and that hereafter N-I-G-G-E-R will merely be another way of spelling the word American. Many a man in the four regiments comprising the 93rd Division when he heard about the exploit of May 15th, oiled his rifle, sharpened his bayonet and wetted his trench knife resolved to go Henry Johnson and Needham Roberts one better if the opportunity came to him. It did come to many of them in the days that followed and although none got a chance to distinguish himself in equal degree with the redoubtable Johnson, it was because the Bosch had become too wary. They had cultivated a healthy respect for the colored men and called them, bloodlisted Schwartz a manner, meaning, bloodthirsty black men, 
Another nickname they had was, Hell Fighters. When the 93rd Division was brigaded with the French on the aim, at least two of the component regiments were under a French general having in his command several thousand Moroccan Negroes. He placed them on the other side of the river fearing they would quarrel over religious differences. However, it was impossible to keep them from fraternizing. There were no religious disputes, nor is it of record that the Americans attempted to convert the Mohammedans, but they did initiate their turban comrades into the mysteries of a certain American game and it is said that the disciples of Allah experienced considerable hard luck. Most of the 93rd Division was under fire from the early days of May, 1918, until the close of the war, the 369th, which left New York with 56 officers and 2.000 men returned with only 20 officers and 1.200 men of the original organization. A few had been transferred to casual companies and other commands, but many will never come back, their bodies being part of the soil of France killed in action, died of wounds or disease. The tale of the 93rd is full of deeds of valor, laughter in the face of death, a fearful carnage wrecked upon the foe, of childlike pride in the homage their allies paid them. And now and then an incident replete with the bubbling Negro humor that is the same whether it finds its outlet on the cotton fields of Dixie or the battlefields of France. Between the French and the colored troops the spirit was superb. The French poilu had not been taught that the color of a man's skin made a difference. He had no prejudices. How could he have? Coming from a nation whose motto is liberty, fraternity, equality, he formed his judgment from bravery and manhood and honor. The Negro soldiers ate slept and drank with the poilus. They were happy together. An incident of the valor of the 93rd Division was in the fight at Butte de Messiel, as tough a spot as any in the line between the sea and Switzerland. The ground had been fought over back and forth, neither side holding it for long. The French said it was the burying place of 200.000 of their troops and Germans, and that it could not be held permanently. The Negro boys tackled the job. In four days they had advanced 14 kilometers 8.4 miles and they never retreated. The Negro troops to a great extent went into action with little training, but they learned quickly in the hard school of experience. They excelled in grenade throwing and machine gun work. Grenade throwing is very ticklish business. Releasing the pin lights the fuse. Five seconds after the fuse is lighted the grenade explodes. It must be timed exactly. If thrown too quickly the enemy is liable to pick it up and hurl it back in time to create the explosion in one's own lines. No one cares to hold a grenade long after the fuse is lighted so the boys sometimes threw them ahead of the signal. Shorty, Childress of B Company, 371st Infantry, had been drilled with dummy grenades. When given the real thing he released the pin and immediately heard the fulminating fuse working its way down into the charge. It was too much for his nerves. He threw the grenade as far as he could send it. The lieutenant reprimanded him severely. What do you mean? He said. By hurling that explosive ahead of the proper time. Do you want the Boches to pick it up? Fire it back here and blow us all to smithereens. Shorty was properly abashed. He hung his head and responded. Lieutenant. I begs your pardon. I didn't mean to heave it so soon. But I could actually feel that thing as well in my hand. But they soon acquired the idea and after a short time very few of the grenades reached the enemy either ahead of or behind time. Here is the valiant and humorous story of Elmer McLaughlin, 669 Lenox Avenue, New York City, a private in Company K 369th Infantry, and how he won the Distinguished Service Cross. He said, on September 26th, the captain asked me to carry dispatches. 
The Germans pumped machine gun bullets at me all the way. But I made the trip and got back safely. Then I was sent out again. As I started the captain hollered to bring him back a can of coffee. He was joking but I didn't know it. Being a foot messenger I had some time ducking those German bullets. Those bullets seemed very sociable but I didn't care to meet up with any of them. So I kept on traveling on high gear. None touched my skin. Though some skin pretty close. On the way back it seemed the whole war was turned on me. One bullet passed through my trousers and it made me hop. Skip and jump. I saw a shell hole six feet deep. Take it from me I dented it another six feet when I plunged into it. In my fist I held the captain's can of coffee. When I climbed out of the hole and started running again a bullet clipped a hole in the can and the coffee started to run out. But I turned around stopped a second. Looked the Kaiser in the face and held up the can of coffee with my finger plugging up the hole to show the Germans they were fooled. Just then another bullet hit the can and another finger had to act as a stopper. I pulled out an old rabbit's foot that my girl had given me and rubbed it so hard the hair almost came off. It must have been the good luck thing that saved my life because the bullets were picking at my clothes and so many hit the can that at the end all my fingers were in use to keep the coffee in. I jumped into shell holes and wriggled along the ground and got back safely. And what do you think? When I got back into our own trenches I stumbled and spilled the coffee. Not only did Lieutenant George Miller, Battalion Adjutant, confirm the story, but he added, when that boy came back with the coffee his clothes were riddled with bullets. Yet half an hour later he went out into no man's land and brought back a number of wounded until he was badly gassed. Even then he refused to go to the rear and went out again for a wounded soldier. All this under fire. That's the reason he got the DSC, Corporal Elmer Earl. Also of Company K living in Middletown. NY won the DSC. He explained, we had taken a hill September 26th in the Argonne. We came to the edge of a swamp when the enemy machine guns opened fire. It was so bad that of the 58 of us who went into a particular strip, only 8 came out without being killed or wounded. I made a number of trips out there and brought back about a dozen wounded men. The proudest recollection which Negro officers and privates will carry through life is that of the whole heart recognition given them in the matter of decorations by the French army authorities. Four colored regiments of the 93rd Division attained the highest record in these awards, these regiments being brigaded with the French. Their conduct in action was thus under their observation. Not only was each of these regiments cited as a unit for the Croix de Guerre, but 365 individual soldiers received the coveted decoration. A large number of distinguished service crosses were also distributed to the 93rd Division by General Pershing. The verdict pronounced by critical French commanders may be considered as an unquestionable confirmation that the Negro troops were under all conditions brave fighters. This fact and the improved status of the Negro as a result of it was pointed to by the New York Tribune, in a leading editorial in its issue of February 14, 1919. It said, the B.A.'s relief of the Shaw Memorial became a living thing as the dusky heroes of the 15th cheered the Liberty Statue and happily swarmed down the gangplank. Appropriately the arrival was on the birthday of the revered Lincoln, and never was the young and martyred idealist of Massachusetts filled with greater pride than swelled in Colonel Hayward as he talked of his men the best regiment, he said, with pardonable emphasis, of all engaged in the great war. These were men of the Champagne and the Argonne whose step was always forward, who held a trench ninety days without relief, with every night a raid night, who won 171 medals for conspicuous bravery who saw the war expire under their pressure in a discouraged German cannonade. First-class fighting men, hats off to them.
The Tribunal of Grace does not regard skin color when assessing souls. The boys cheered the Bartholdi statue. It makes some whites uncomfortable. It converts into strange reading glib eulogies of democratic principles. A large faith possesses the Negro. He has such confidence in justice, the flow of which he believes will yet soften hard hearts. We had a wonderful example of a patience that defies discouragement, the souls of black folk. When values are truly measured, some things will be different in this country. Chapter XVI. Through hell and suffering. Negro officers make good wonderful record of the 8th Illinois Black Devils when decorations galore tribute a French commander his farewell to prairie fighters they thought after war was over hard to stop them individual deeds of heroism their dead, their wounded and suffering a poem. In the past when the subject of the Negro's fighting ability was under discussion, there were always found those whose grudging assent to his merits as a soldier was modified by the assertion that he had to be properly commanded, in other words must have white officers. Never having been given a conspicuous opportunity to demonstrate his capacity for leadership in battle, until the formation of the 8th Illinois Infantry in the Spanish-American War, the Negro was forced to arrest under the imputation that as a follower he did fairly well, but as a leader he was a failure. Let anyone who still holds that view study the record of the 8th Illinois, or the 370th, as it was rechristened when entering the service of the general government in the recent war. 71 war crosses with special citations for valor and merit, and 21 distinguished service crosses were awarded officers and men of the regiment. Many men in the 370th were veterans of the Spanish-American War as well as the campaign of 1916 on the Mexican border, which, while not an actual war, was for some months a locality of service and hard service at that, the regiment passing through it with great credit. It was organized as a single battalion in 1891 increased to a regiment and sent to Cuba in 1898, every officer and man in the regiment being a Negro. Upon its return, over half of the city of Chicago turned out in greeting, until July 12, 1918, the regiment had never had a white officer. Then its colonel, F.A. Dennison, was relieved on account of illness and a white officer in the person of Colonel Thomas A.